1984 June, a radical group of Sikhs had entered the Golden Temple and took shelter there, proclaiming self-independence or autonomy for the Sikhs. And uh, eventually, to flush them out, uh, the Indian government sent in the Indian army. And as we know, chaos pursued for three, four days, and people were killed, and uh, the whole of the Golden Temple, the Inner Sanctum, was completely destroyed. And this sent ripples across the world, especially to the Sikhs who live in outside India. Welcome to the True Fiction Project, a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Welcome back to the True Fiction Project. I am your host, Renita Hora. And some of you might know that I am actually from Punjab. So I'm very thrilled to have this particular guest on my show today. His name is Bobby Singh Bansal. He is from England. And he is a British-born author, filmmaker, documentary maker, historian. I mean, it just gets better and better as the list gets longer. So, hi, Bobby. It's great to have you on the True Fiction Project. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And Bobby, you are not new to this. You have written a couple of books and you've made some films and the topic for all of these is in some way, shape or form Punjab. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. The central focus, the subject, the theme is always connected to the Punjab. I love it. I love it. I have this old joke. It's not even a joke. It's very true that here I am. I grew up in Bombay. I am in San Francisco and Southern California. And I always say that you can take the girl out of Punjab, but you cannot take Punjab out of the girl. I don't care how, where. Exactly, exactly. So I'm thrilled to talk to you about your work. Tell us briefly before we sort of launch into your latest project, in general, what is your work about? My work focuses normally on Sikh heritage, uh, history, and the culture and the arts. So for the last 30 years, I've been kind of uh, going forth and back to Pakistan and India, documenting, preserving Sikh monuments, doing lectures, and basically promoting the, the, our rich heritage and the legacy to the next generation of researchers and uh, students. Because uh, I feel that it's... Uh, when you're born outside India, and I was born in England, yet I knew nothing about my history, about my culture. And when you get to a certain age, I think 1984 was the crucial juncture in my life. To that point, I knew nothing about my religion and nothing about my history. And um, I started going to the libraries, picking books up. Age 19, I arrived in Pakistan, much to the frustration of my family, because I wanted to learn more about who we were as a community. And so this journey began in 1989, and here we are, 30 years later. I'm still as passionate as ever, traveling far corners of, of, of the Punjab. Whether that Punjab's in Pakistan or India makes no difference to me. For me, it's just one province. We've lost our heritage and we've lost uh, our history in that part of the country, which is not being promoted. So my task was, how do we go about documenting our heritage and our culture? That was through books, 
through exhibitions, through events, and and through documentaries. And so here we are. This book, Punjab Chiefs, is simply uh, about the noble and the aristocratic families that ruled the Punjab since the 18th century. Um, as you not. Before we dive into the Punjab Chiefs. If you could explain for our listeners, what was it that happened in 1984? Yeah, so those who are not aware of what happened in 1984 in India, and as you know that in 1984, June, a radical group of Sikhs had entered the Golden Temple and took shelter there, proclaiming self-independence or autonomy for the Sikhs, and uh, eventually to flush them out, uh, the Indian government sent in the Indian army and as we know, chaos pursued for three, four days, and people were killed, and uh, the whole of the Golden Temple, the Inner Sanctum, was completely destroyed. And this sent ripples across the world, especially to the Sikhs who live in outside India, that who felt that this was an attack on our religion. I mean, the Golden Temple, the Haramanda Saab, is the spiritual capital of the Sikhs, and... Um, that was a, not just for me, I suppose, for a lot, a lot of Sikhs who were not aware of Sikhism or the history, that was an eye-opener. And that's when I began to learn more about who we were as a community. That's when I started going to the libraries. What was Amritsar? What was, who were these radical Sikhs and who, who we were Sikhs? How did we evolve over the years and especially the gurus? So I started learning more about Sikhism, basically, Eight around about seventeen at the time, and but when you when I, the more I learned, the more I learned that most of that heritage was not in India, but in Pakistan. That's where Sikhism kind of the origin of Sikhism was, was in Nankanasar, the birthplace of Sikhism, where where Guru Nanak Dev Ji was born. And so I wanted to travel to Pakistan, but uh, it was not easy going to Pakistan in the eighties, especially when you're a seventeen-year-old British Sikh, uh, barely can speak the language. That's when the journey began. And so that was the eye-opener of 84. I started learning more about who we were. And the more I read, the more intrigued and the more curious I became. And I just wanted to see these wonderful places that are in the Punjab, in the Pakistan side of Punjab. So your current book, your new book, The Punjab Chiefs, what is that about? And what are some of the stories that inspired its content? The Punjab Chief is a, is a book about the Sikh nobility. And the first edition that came out was in 1865 by Lepel Griffin. Lepel Griffin was a, a British administrator. And he was given the task by the British government to kind of track down and to kind of document all the nobility in the Punjab. Now, when I mean the nobility, I don't mean Sikhs in particular. The nobility concluded Hindus and Muslims who were in a majority in the Punjab. Now, don't forget the Punjab was a vast province in the 18, before 1947. It was, I mean, stretched from Afghanistan to China. And in Punjab, there were a lot of Muslim and Hindu noble families. Sikhs were also there. So this edition that came out by Lepel Griffin was more of an intelligence gathering because the British really wanted to find out who were the wealthy landowners in the Punjab, who were the rich estate holders, how eventually they would be controlled by the British government. And the noble family, unaware of the agenda on the British government, fell in that trap and started providing 
all their details of this is the estates we own here. These are our vast farms and vast forts and palaces. And so this book came out in 1865. It was then updated in 1890, 1910. And the last edition that came out was in 1939. So I was just curious since 1939 to the present day, 2019, when this book was actually printed. What happened to the noble families mm. and the, the aristocrat families, especially after 1947 when the country was partitioned? Because a lot of the, the noble families lived in that part of the Punjab, West Punjab, who had to migrate east to India and vice versa. The Muslims who were living in eastern Punjab had to migrate west to, to the newly created Pakistan. And a lot of families that when I eventually interviewed them in 2017 and 18 during my research, had abandoned a lot of their materials, their relics, their ancestral estates, huge, huge thousands of acres of land. More importantly, they had to abandon ancestral manuscripts, which documented their family's history since the 17th century. And in that chaos and in that mayhem of partition, a lot of families didn't make it to either side of the border and who were tragically killed. But those who did make it, I was very curious that nobody had documented what happened to these families since 1939. So if I just go back to 2010, I wrote a book called The Europeans at the Court of Lahore, which was about European mercenaries who, in the early 19th century, traveled to the Punjab to seek employment in the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. And uh, the court of Ranjit Singh was the only province and the only sovereign state that was not controlled by the British Empire. And a lot of French and Italians and the Dutch and Spanish and even some Americans, two Americans, uh, one from uh, Philadelphia, Josiah Holland, and one from Wisconsin, Alexander Gardner, made their way to Lahore to seek fiddle and served the Sikh king, Maharaja Ranjit Singh. So I wrote a book in 2010 about 20 of the Europeans that I've managed to track down in Europe. So that gave me the initiative, well, I should also document the Punjab chiefs, the old version, because there was an 80-year gap of vital information that was needed. So what I did in 2015 and 16, I started traveling forth and back to India, tracking down, not in the original book, there was over 200 families. I managed to track down 70 families, 70, 80 families. And then when we completed the publication in 2019, unfortunately, COVID struck and there was a delay for two years. And in that two years, some descendants of the families who since passed away. But going back to the Punjab chiefs, I met each family, each one of them over the five-year period. And the stories that they shared with me, I mean, I met noble families, their descendants, who were in their 80s and 90s, and they had these photographic memories of the stories that there was being passed down by the generation, by their grandparents. And they were so passionate and so eager to share this with me. And I felt blessed to sat among them in their palatial palaces in Pakistan and India and to hear their stories and how they managed to cross over to India or to Pakistan and who their ancestors, who they served, the great King Maharaja Ranjit Singh, they felt so proud that their great, great, great ancestors had served the mighty Sikh court as a general, as a courtier, as a governor, as an administrator. They showed me all sorts of rare, rare relics 
which had survived in, by a lot of families which they had retained and kept. Large oil paintings hung on the walls of their wonderful houses and residences and to capture all that and put into a book. And like I said, I managed to track down 90 families. But in this edition, I'm only inserting 70 because the book feels coming become too heavy and too big. I mean, it's already 550 pages and it includes several Muslim families, Hindu families, Sikh families. And so we launched it only finally after COVID uh, last April in Chandigarh, where over 300 families turned up. It was more of a reunion, not a book launch, I felt, because these families had never met. And they told me that I had resurrected them from obscurity and brought them together at this wonderful launch in Chandigarh and Amritsar two months back. Bobby, I can only begin to imagine. It sounds like a work of marvelous not just non-fiction, but historical non-fiction documentation. Now, I wonder if you could think about some of the conversations you've had. Obviously, 70 families, that's a lot. So maybe one or some of those relics. And share with us one particular story that stands out. The premise of this show, it's the True Fiction Project, is to really explore the journey from nonfiction to fiction. So I will actually give this interview to one of our fiction writers who will listen to it and be inspired by something and come up with a story, a fictional story based on this. So what would you like to give them? I will give you one little story. We need to go back to 1837. Now, the Maharaja's grandson, the 17-year-old Nonial Singh, Prince Nonial Singh, was getting married in Amritsar, and the Maharaja had invited all these foreign dignitaries, the Afghans, the Persians, the Chinese, and especially the British. And the British were very eager to kind of take over the Punjab eventually when they knew that this old Maharaja would pass away one day. But whilst he was alive, they dare not look at the Punjab and had any plans of invasion. But Ranjit Singh was getting his grandson married off to one of his general's daughters. So Sham Singh Atariwala was a Sikh general who served under the, uh, the Maharaja. And his daughter, Bibi Nanke, was getting married to the grandson. And at the wedding, so many degrees had turned up. And the Maharaja wanted to impress the British in particular. He wanted to show the British that he was a, a power. And he had this beautiful kingdom which he was ruling. And it was a very ostentatious uh, wedding that took place in 1837, uh, April the 30th, when all the dignitaries arrived in Amritsar and the tents were erected. As the, the I can see, I was told by the Sham Singh Atariwala's descendants today, they said to me, Bobby, look at the fields here. These fields were completely, completely filled up to the horizon with tents. So they had over 20,000 people attend this wonderful historical wedding. And when the British commander-in-chief, Sir Henry Fane, came with his daughter, Isabella, gifts were exchanged at the wedding. And Maharaja Ranjit Singh had this a beautiful tray of jewels besides him. And he signaled to his attendants. He pulled out this beautiful gold bracelet adorned with emeralds and rubies. And he gave it to Isabella, Fane's daughter. He goes, here, my dear, this is for you as a gift so that you can remember me when you go back to England. 
And not just a bracelet, he pulled out several other gifts for all the other British officials that were sitting beside him. And I think there was 20 in total. These officials, I read their letters afterward when they wrote back to their families that they had received all these wonderful relics and gifts from the Maharaja. And I remember one letter said that the father, Henry Fane, said, No, Your Majesty, this is too expensive. We cannot accept these gifts. And the Maharaja said, Nonsense. Uh, they're just one of thousands I have stored in my treasury. Uh, I will not miss it. And so Nanihal Singh, who got married into the Atari Wala family, Sham Singh Tariwala's family, the family who I met, who are in the book, told me these wonderful stories that the amount of money that was spent on this wedding would equate to a, for several million pounds today in today's money. Yet in them days, back in the 1830s, so much money was spent on this lavish, lavish and extravagant wedding that the British knew from that point onwards that they had to take control eventually of this wonderful kingdom that was built by Ranjit Singh at the age of 19. And a lot of the family that are in the book have shared so many similar stories of the generosity and the kindness of the Maharaja, how they were promoted with large estates, how they were given wonderful medals, uh, jewels, you know, pashmina shawls, silks. I sat for hours and hours at these families' houses, just being absorbed in their conversation. Because when I went to another family, he told me the same story. I was meant to be there for one hour at interview. I was there for about five, six hours. And I had to prolong my stay in India and Pakistan because I couldn't meet all the families within that time because there's too many stories. And the, the relics they were showing me, you know, jeweled swords, pistols, medals, medals that had, you know, rubies and diamonds. So this is a gift from the Maharaja. This is 180 years old. You know, we have this necklace, etc. And, you know, it was just mind-blowing. If we come back to the present day, one of the families, the Vahali family, my host here, in Calabasas, Sardar Mukshinda Singh Bahali, his ancestor, Sardar Bhag Singh, served Ranjit Singh as a general, but he was also control of the salt range for the Maharaja. He had wonderful gifts that he shared with me a few days ago, and the historical manuscripts and the letters that were going forth and back. And so it was just an eye-opener for me that some of the families who are so proud of their legacy and their kind of his history connected to the Punjab. It's just sad that 200 years later, a lot of the next generation of families are unaware of their legacy, of their history. And so this book, I hope, will touch those uh, hearts and those people that they will learn more about glory of the Punjab. Indeed. Through the stories that's been told. And this book, unlike the other previous editions of the Punjab Chiefs, has two, over 250 rare images and photographs that were provided by the families. 99% of the images in this book have never been published. And so it's, um, and you see some marvelous portraits in this. Uh, it's all on art paper. And the two portraits which my wife had also reproduced, because my wife is an artist. So we produced on the back cover. And on the front cover of the book, uh, it shows Sardar Darshan Singh, who is the father of my host here, Sardar Mokshinder Singh Vahali. And he asked me, why did you choose this particular photograph for the front cover? And my publisher also asked me, why are you going for this one in particular? And I said, look at it. This is a true depiction of the chief of Punjab with his attire, 
with his beautiful jewels bedecked on his turban and the furniture from that period all carved up from the 1830s and 1820s and the velvet curtains in the backdrop. It's fascinating. That is a true depiction. It is truly fascinating. It's fascinating what you say, Bobby. And I think we're going to have to convince uh, Sardar Mukshinder Singh to uh, display some of these relics in his winery. I don't think there is another winery in all of the US or maybe anywhere that would have this kind of exhibition. But I have to ask you, why is it that Maharaja Ranjit Singh was so powerful? How was it that this was one state, one empire, one principality, one kingdom that the British just couldn't penetrate? That is because, you know, Ranjit Singh was, at an early age, he was so wise. I mean, he was too far ahead of his time. He lost his father at a very young age, and he was taught all the military tactics and the warfare by his father's friends and colleagues. He was drawn at a very early age how to control and subjugate feuding landlords. Oh, don't forget the Punjab was always internal tensions and frictions between other leading families who wanted to expand their territories at the expense of the other landlords. But Ranjit saw, saw this at an early age and he controlled the Misaldars who were ruling the Punjab at the time, brought them together. Because he knew that at some point. And then he carved out his kingdom. Why? Because he had fascinating, he had wonderful charismatic generals and courtiers. But more importantly, by 1820, he had some of the Europeans that turned up from France and Italy who served him, who had actually modernized the Sikh army to European standards. By 1830, Maharaja Ranjit Singh had over 65 European mercenaries serving him. Like I told you, he had two, three Americans that were serving in the Sikh artillery. And that's why the British knew the power of Ranjit Singh. He was no, no little man that they can just swallow up within a few weeks. They knew that Ranjit Singh's army was good as the British army. They knew that Ranjit Singh's artillery was equipped with the best artillery engineers in the Punjab. And they just waited and waited and waited until he died. And when the intrigues followed after Ranjit Singh's death and within 10 years of Ranjit Singh dying, all his family, all his sons had been assassinated. And when the rot finally settled in, the British found this wonderful opportunity to invade the kingdom. And uh, the only surviving son of Ranjit Singh was Dalip Singh. He was deported on the pretext of education. There was a power vacuum in the Punjab. And so the British took the Punjab in 1849 after two very, very barbaric Sikh wars. I mean, the British nearly lost their empire in these wars, but the Sikhs again were betrayed. But Ranjit Singh was so powerful that he was now sending letters to the French Emperor, Sir Louis Philippe, when his French officer, uh, General Allard, in which I've written a novel about, was also this in, called The Sunrises in the East. That shows this French officer going back to, the, to Paris, meeting the French king and telling him, look, I am a general of the Sikh Maharaja, we wish to develop friendly relations with, between Punjab and France. And so the French king gave him a letter saying, we wish to install a French embassy in Lahore and Mr. Allard will become the first French ambassador to, to the kingdom of Punjab. These were really, really developing times for the Punjab. And the sad part was that when Yu Singh was quite ill and he died prematurely from excessive drinking and uh, I heard that he, in his wines and in his drink, he used to add 
opium and the crushed pearls to kind of for, for, for medicinal purposes, but it kind of had a very detrimental effect on his health. And the British saw this opportunity and uh, unfortunately they took over the Punjab 1849. You're right. There's so much of this history that we just don't know. So it's so important, the work you're doing. I do want to ask you one closing question, and that is when we think about Indian history and politics, we think about a very divisive nature amongst the people, right? The Hindus versus the Muslims, the Sikhs in separate camps. This is what we are told. This is what we are taught, actually, if anything. But you talk about these Punjab chieftains all working together from these different communities. So I would love for you, before you leave, to explain that. In today's society, there is not any unity. If we go back just 70, 80 years ago, there was a lot of unity between different... Religion never played a part in the Punjab chiefs. It was all about being Punjabi, right? And don't forget, Punjab was never Sikh-dominated when it comes to demographics. Sikhs were always in a minority, even during the empire. Punjab was always predominantly Muslim, 70%, then Hindus and Sikhs. And yet, they all worked under one umbrella, under one coordination, which sadly I can say is not the case today. Today it's all about religion and politics, and this is where, and there's a lot of disunity, and there's a lot of lack of education, because I wasn't taught Sikh history in school. I was mocked in the 70s. People don't understand the turban. But now in today's society, in England especially, what I can say is in schools, pupils are taught about different religions, about Islam, about Hinduism, about Sikhism. So now they're more aware. But your question remains answered, which is that there needs to be unity and there needs to be more education and more openness. The normal American, the normal Englishman needs to know about Sikhism, about Hinduism, about Islam so that we can focus more on, on the arts and the history instead of the politics. I think when it comes to politics, this, this is where our downfall is. There are many Sikh politicians now in uh, Britain in very top jobs, as you know, and they are doing a wonderful job promoting the Sikh or the Hindu diaspora in India even. This is what I'm trying to do. Is I travel all over the world giving lectures in some parts. Of, I gave a lecture recently to, at Stanford University on behalf of Sikh Foundation, Dr. Kapani. And so uh, my job is simple, to, um, to promote and um, educate the Sikh heritage. Thank you so much for being a guest on The True Fiction Project. Thank you for having me. I cannot wait to dive into your book and to have you back on the show and talk about your other books. I would love to do that. Yes, yes. That was my guest, Bobby Singh Bansal. He is a British-born historian, author, documentary filmmaker, specifically doing a deep dive on the history of the Sikh community and their relations over the generations with the British. This is The True Fiction Project, and I am your host, Renita Hora. Thanks for listening. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. And now to the premise of the true fiction project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. Solace in our roots. It was a beautiful afternoon in London. The eve of fall was upon us, and the trees dared to shed their leaves and paint the city in a gorgeous display of orange, red, and yellow. I had just finished my long journey through India, the Punjabi area specifically, collecting information and stories from families about their ancestors and faith. I walked along a sidewalk, trying to find a bench nestled under a tree, when I noticed a young girl crying to herself. I slid my notebook into her jacket pocket and approached her, rubbing my chin as I looked around for any cause of her distress. Is everything all right? I asked, standing beside the bench. She pulled her hands away from her face and looked up to me for a moment before shaking her head. Do you mind if I sit? I pointed towards the seat. She just nodded, looking away from me again. Behind us was a playground. The laughter of children reached our ears and I wondered why she wasn't enjoying the wonderful fall afternoon. What's your name? Yet another question thrown at this poor girl. Junita, she said through her fingers, but most people just call me June. You have a very pretty name, Junita, I smiled. Why are you not off playing? Did the other children send you away? She shook her head again, trying to stifle her cries so she could speak clearly. After a brief moment, she finally put her hands down, sighing as she looked up to me. All of my friends seem to know everything about themselves, but whenever they ask me about my sick heritage, I don't know what to say. Her lower lip trembled, and for a moment I thought she was about to start crying again. She kept her composure, looking to the ground once more. My family has told me about our religion, but both of my parents are always working, so I don't know its history. She squeezed her knees tightly. Sometimes I wish I wasn't born in Britain. I nodded, not wishing to interrupt her until she had finished. It's nothing to be ashamed of, I started. There was a time I was very much like you. I was born a sick in the UK as well. Really? She seemed to loosen up, finding courage to pull her eyes away from the concrete. I nodded again before continuing. Throughout my youth, I was unsure of my identity just as you. But eventually you will learn, as I have, that your identity is not defined by anyone but yourself. I took a breath. She seemed to be following along rather intently, so I continued. Being a Sikh in Britain is by no means a bad thing. In fact, it gives you the unique opportunity to create a new identity. I looked through the leaves and to the sky for a moment. You can still embrace your history while adopting the culture you're born around. You are not less of a Sikh because of your birthplace. I looked back to her with a smile. She seemed to understand what I meant, but was still saddened. Well, see, that's the thing, she sighed. I know very little of the origin of Sikhism to begin with. I don't even know where it comes from. Why don't I teach you a little bit then, 
I grinned. I saw myself in Junita. I had always wished there was someone to teach me more about my heritage. You would really do that? She seemed dumbfounded, to which I chuckled. Of course, though it is a very deep and rich history, one I could not explain in a day. She sprung to life, sitting with her legs crossed on the bench. Let's see, I rubbed my chin. Well, first, you should know where Sikhism comes from. It hails from Punjab, a northern state of India that borders Pakistan. The area has been through much turmoil and persecution, but its rich history could never be stripped away. How so? Junita broke in. My teachers never speak of it in class. Just because it is not taught does not mean it does not exist. Sometimes the best source of knowledge is exploration and fieldwork, finding things out on your own. Many families and their ancestries carry Sikhism with them. It is through their stories and faith that it is eternal. What about statues or pieces of art? Junita's curiosity was insatiable. Plenty still exist and are always created. However, Punjab and India have gone through major change throughout history. When the British annexed them in 1849, they divided Punjab into two halves based on religious belief. Later on, it would be separated again, this time with linguistic boundaries. I stopped for a breath. Junita seized the opportunity. I'm glad to learn about where my family is from, but I still don't know much about my religion. I readied myself for my next bit of history. Well, you see, it was at this time that the Constitution of India was written, and the Gathered Sikh representatives refused to sign it. Its writings labeled Sikhs, Buddhists, and Jains as Hindus. The Sikhs fought for the recognition of their belief and their own free will of Punjab. The Sikh people remained. The partition nor the troubling start of the Constitution could disrupt Sikh faith. Much like the Herminda Sahib. The what? Janita interrupted. Herminda... Herminda Sahab, or the Golden Temple, I started again. Like the Sikh people, the temple has withstood the test of time. It was once the target of persecution from the Indian army. They tried to destroy the place of worship, but it was in vain. It was rebuilt and became a beacon of prosperity once more. A place where anyone, regardless of origin or belief, could come to worship. So, you're saying Sikhism is like the Harminda Sahib? The people keep them alive and timeless, no matter where their background may be? She was following along well. Exactly. People from all walks of life are accepted into the temple because everyone in their beliefs are equally as important. Junita didn't have a question. Rather, she had turned her attention away from me and stared off down the road. It was quite a first lecture for the young girl, but she seemed to catch on quickly. From across the road, a woman called out for Janita. It made the girl rocket out of her spot on the bench, on her feet and already making her way to the edge of the sidewalk. Thank you for everything! She grinned shyly when she realized she had never asked my name. Bobby Bensal, I responded when I saw she was too shy to ask. Just call me Bobby. Thank you again, Bobby, she said with a wave, already halfway across the street. I shook my head with a laugh as I pulled my notebook back out, a pencil already between its pages. I had spent the past couple of years collecting stories of the past and speaking with families about their ancestors. It was nice to know the future of those families, of that heritage, was in good hands. I opened my notebook and started a new section labelled Junita.
Here at the True Fiction Project, we are always looking for great stories that make for compelling fiction. So, if you have a great story or know somebody who does, or if you are a writer who would like to contribute, then please do get in touch with us at renita.com forward slash contact. Thank you for listening to the True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com. Thank you.